Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. We're going to start the agenda with risk management from a regulator's view. We'll go through risk refresher and the basics. Then we'll build on those and and talk about how risk plays into usability. Um, And then we'll wrap up with some final thoughts and best practices about where do we think all of this is going, especially with the upcoming QMSR. So, starting with risk from a regulator's perspective. ISO 14971 is, you know, pretty commonly recognized across uh, industry and across global regulations. And it's sometimes seen as the holy grail, if you will, for risk requirements. But if it were only that easy, in addition to 14971, we have a variety of augmenting documents that you have to really piece together to get a, a total picture of how risk is perceived beyond 14971. We've got the preamble um, to the FDA's quality system regulation. We've got ISO 1345, uh, ISO 62366 for usability, the European uh, Medical Device Directive, and there's a variety of guidance documents, including uh, GHTF documents, IMDRF, and, and more. And this list is not comprehensive. It's just, just meant to me, there's a lot. For risk, if you look at the number of times that 21 CFR says the word risk versus the preamble, it's the you have a single occurrence of the word risk in the uh, QSR, whereas the preamble, which is what the FDA apparently really meant to say when they published the QSR, mentions risk 36 times. And now it's it's important to know the preamble precedes the regulations in terms of content um, that came out at the same time, and one was meant to help uh, essentially interpret the other, even though only one uh, was a regulatory statute. So if we take a closer look at the preamble and its focus on risk, we've got risk talked about in several locations, um, which pretty much already suggests 14971 without calling it out. The most popular comment is they replaced hazard analysis with risk analysis. And this was derived from FDA's involvement in ISO TC 210, which is the working group which publishes 13485. So we we already foresee kind of the thinking and recognition of both ISO 1345 and 14971, even way back in 1996-1997 timeframe when the QSR was, was published and updated with design controls. We see that they expect the risk associated with hazards, any risk judged unacceptable, is all addressed in a risk analysis, that the risk analysis must be conducted. Again, we have early recognition or acknowledgement of ISO 13485. And they they continue to talk about using words with, uh, that are, are commiserate or with what we think of now as 14971. Um, And again, these were were very, very early thinking about the FDA. And you can see that it 
it speaks a lot more to the risk and understanding of how to apply risk, not only in design controls, but in your quality management system, far in excess of what they imply in the single reference. So again, in February of this year, FDA proposed the QMSR to harmonize with 13485. But this is particularly challenging, not only for, for industry that might not have uh, adopted 13485 because they didn't go uh, internationally, but it's also challenging for the FDA because the FDA has been trained extensively in the quality system regulation. They have been trained extensively in the quality system inspection technique, which is a whole different methodology than ISO inspections. And so that the FDA with ushering in the QMSR are having to adopt a lot of training programs because even their uh, in inspectors and internal resources, even though the regulation was moving this way in thought, in actual practice and implementation, they're, they're, still, they're still a little bit of, of disjointed thinking and, and training available. So the FDA is actually working with ASQ to drive certifications uh, for their, their inspectors and reviewers that include some that, that we all hold. You know, I have the old school quality uh, system auditor or CQA. Uh, and then uh, now I think it's CMDA. They're inclu uh, including operational excellence and some other common um, ASQ certifications for FDA personnel. In terms of 14971, 14971 is a recognized consensus standard for the FDA. The, the recognition for 2019 is got, it will be effective in December 25th of 2022, so a little gift to people who have not properly prepared. So the 2007 edition and the 2012 will be formally uh, sunset at that point. So what does ISO have to say in terms of risk? Well, risk is discussed 32 times throughout ISO 1345, and that's 32 times in about 20 some odd pages. So one of the most notable references is that organizations must apply a risk-based approach to the control of the appropriate processes needed for the quality management system. So this is now, you know, a much bigger and more pervasive than uh, just risk management and design controls in 14971, and it touches on almost every aspect of the quality management system with the idea of the risk-based approach. So the ISO 1345 is ta talks about risk in total of 246 times compared to the 32 mentions of ISO 13485. Um, and the reason this is, is again, because it, it's pervasive throughout the quality management system. They expect that you're thinking about risk outside of design controls and outside of just product development and post-market activities. They expect that, that the entire system that touches and interfaces with your product has got the, the concepts of some level of, of risk management. 
built in. So the MDR only talks about risk in about 11 or so places, but they rely heavily on ISO 13485 and 14971. And they introduced this concept of risk in context of state of the art. I've done several presentations on the definition of state of the art and how it interfaces with risk management. So be sure to look, look those up if you've got questions on the definition of state of the art. And then they also talk about state of the art in terms of the clinical applications and the clinical state of the art, not just the performance of the, of the product. So I thought that this graph was, was very meaningful in terms of understanding the, the life cycle of a risk analysis compared to the life cycle of the device. Initially, when there's a new technology that comes out, your benefits of that technology might outweigh the risks. However, as technology progresses, that, that, that which the benefits outweigh the risk initially may move into an, a point where state of the art actually reflects something more um, that has moved your state of the art to something more suitable and that you are expect to move your risk benefit analysis. So something that might've had more benefits at one point in time, uh, as the product matures, may have more hazards if you haven't kept up with um, state of the art in technologies. So risk management is really at the heart of the argument for your design controls, your post-market surveillance, and most importantly, of your quality management system. Because again, it's expected to be end-to-end, -end, not only for your product, but for the processes that are interacting throughout that product lifecycle and its manufacturing and post-market environment. So let's go over just a, a little bit of some basics and then we'll take a deeper dive into some of these things and uh, ISO 24971 and then also um, 62366. So everybody is painfully familiar with this graphic out of 14971. You know, risk management is the process as a whole where risk analysis and risk evaluation make up one small portion of risk assessment that, that contributes to the overall risk management process. So again, the, in the risk analysis, the, where the quality system regulation mentions it, that single time is it's, that says specifically that design validation shall include software validation and risk analysis where appropriate. And the FDA, I think since the preamble came out, has been relying heavily on uh, that comment 83 that we went over earlier, um, where they basically sum up the different processes of risk uh, of the risk management in a nutshell or risk analysis in a nutshell throughout that that comment. So when's the right time to start? your risk management process? Well, it's when it's the right time to ask the right questions related to risk and usability. And it has to do also with your opportunity to influence the device design. You know, in early stages, stages of the definition and the design is when you've really got the, the, the prime opportunity to influence the design and not have a lot of expensive 
rework as you get further down that process. So the risk management file is produced typically at the end of the culmination of the both the end and the beginning of the risk management process because once you you finish the cycle and you transfer something into pro, into production then you have uh, post-market activities that kind of start the process all over and you almost do a reality check on the things and the assumptions you made in your additional design so again, 14971-2019 is a voluntary, voluntary recognized consensus standard. And I'm saying it's voluntary for now. And it's not that 14971 will ever become an actual regulation, if you will. But the closer that the F FDA harmonizes with ISO 13485, by in turn, the closer ISO 14971 will be harmonized with how they're thinking and the documents that they're expecting to see in both submission and in quality system inspections and post-market surveillance. So just be prepared that, that it's not just a transition to 1345, at least mentally, but it's also a transi tra transition to a broader embrace of 14971. Um, just to add there, uh, very timely earlier in the week, FDA had done their own uh, risk workshop. Michelle and I both attended just to hear what the agency was saying. And they, we were uh, messaging each other talking about how FDA is saying it's a really, really good idea. And like Michelle really, said, really. Like a really, really good idea. It's going to start impacting submissions, I think, in a way that that wasn't previously there before when, you know, the agency is starting to get trained on this standard and 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 more aligned with what risk management means to them as they align to ISO. And they're notorious for what we always meant to say. So if we, we look at the now the basic terms that we're going to build on here. We've got uh, the risk is uh, you've got risks, hazards, hazardous situations, and harms. So let's walk through some different scenarios to understand the applicability of these terms and how they build as we understand risk management activities. Risk is the combination of the probability of occurrence of harm and the severity of that harm. And the harm is the injury or damage to health of health of people or damage to property or the environment. And together, this combination creates a risk. But how do you derive the severity and probability to understand the concept of that risk? So here we have a, a possible problem. We have uh, several occurrences of probability of occurrences of harm that could happen in this circumstance, but what is the severity of them? Well, we have to understand the hazard that is present. So we also have to have a context in which we get exposed to the hazard that makes a hazardous situation in which the probability of occurrence of that harm is greater than zero. 
because if we don't have exposure to the hazard, we might not have a risk. If we're not planning on getting in the ocean where, you know, most sharks aren't really like jaws and they're going to come up on land and attack you. Um, however, if we go into the ocean, we may have a significant probability of being exposed to this hazard in the way of being a shark. So here enter the idea of mitigations. So a lot of people don't know this about Julia Childs, but before she started her uh, career as a, a chef, she worked in the CIA's predecessor office of strategic services, where she was tasked during World War II to come up a way, with a, a way to prevent sailors who, who were sunk on their ships uh, in the Pacific Ocean that were getting eaten by sharks. There were more, more sailors eaten by sharks uh, than actually sank and drowned, um, I've, I've read somewhere. And so she worked in a lab until she came up with something called shark, shark cakes. And the, the Office of Strategic Services put out a press release that said, the answer to the threat of man-eating sharks, the scavengers of which infest all tropical waters around the world, was announced today. And their solution was shark cakes. So now it makes our previous hazardous situation at least more safe. So 14971 had, or at least 24971 now, they, they took this out of 14971 and moved it to the TIR, uh, has a whole list of helpful hazards for you to consider. So you're not brainstorming these uh, from scratch. And so now let's move back and look at the sequence of events leading to risk. So you have a hazardous situation that is, uh, so you have to have a, haz a sequence of events where you get exposed to a hazard that can create a harm, and you're gonna have a probability associated with each sequence and with the, the, of events and the combination of that hazard and harm. The combination of that hazard and harm will lead to a severity of harm, and then the prob probability of occurrence of harm is the probability of the exposure to that sequence of events combined with the, the hazard and the harm um, combination. And, uh, and it's, it's these combinations that lead to the final concept of risk. So if you don't have the right set of overlaps, you may not have a risk even though you have a hazard, but you don't have a hazardous situation to, in which you can be exposed to it to create a harm. So if we go back to our shark example, let's say our hazard is the shark and we have a series of events that could happen independently or they could happen uh, together. Um, and it's these circumstances that can affect the severity. So we could have uh, the probability that our shark is a tiger shark or our shark is a great white shark. We could have a probability if that our shark is hungry or it might have just eaten. We could have a situation in where the, the user gets in the water and the user decides, no, I'm good. 
If the user swims near a shark with no shark cake, that is yet another probability. And it's the combination of these that are going to ultimately create if we have a hazardous situation that exists or not. Clearly, our users have to get into the ocean and swim with the shark to be exposed to the hazard. But if they have a shark cake, that has the ability of affecting the severity of the harm. It could be just mental trauma of uh, a shark is circling you and it just keeps on moving. I think I might be traumatized for quite a while from that one. We could have a bite that is uh, that varies in the level of severity up to the possibility of uh, a harm that could lead to death. So it's, it's the, this combination of the interactions of hazards, hazard situations, and circumstances and that, that can all be affected by your um, risk mitigations or risk control measures that can ultimately affect your final um, severity and occurrence uh, uh, rating for your risk. So for risk identification, um, you have to document both the intended use and the foreseeable misuse of the device. So all the things that might go wrong. And these things really need to be understood uh, as kind of two pieces of the pie. And I think, you know, we see it a lot that, that we, we get very early stage clients that don't even understand all their device features. Or, or what they, or I want this, I want that, I want this other thing. And every time they add these, they change an intended use. And every time you change or add an intended use, you're changing and adding foreseeable misuses as well. Another good way early in risk analysis that you can understand foreseeable misuse is look at other people's similar products in the recall database and the adverse event database. And right away, you these become reasonably foreseeable, even if that they were things that you did not think your product would expose somebody to. So then you have to estimate the risk for each hazardous situation. And again, your hazard and your sequence events is going to equal your hazardous situation. And then you have to have the consequence analysis you have to assess the effectiveness of your additional controls or, or your effectiveness of your existing controls. Then you're going to have a probability estimation. Your probability estimation can take, depending on where you're at in your product development cycle, it can be largely qualitative as they often are um, and for new products or new technologies. It can be quantitative in the terms of uh, post-market surveillance data or it can be semi-quantitative where you use some, some tools, but at the end of the day, it's still a little bit of a subjective analysis. So Ty, I think this is one of your, your favorite slides. Do you wanna do this one? Yeah, sure. So everyone has kind of seen this risk evaluation. So I can't advance it, but you can always pick your severity um, so say you have a minor severity here that a slight customer inconvenience and that occurs occasionally. Where I find the problem is, is that 
you see this frequent probable occasional remote and these exact descriptions in every system that you work in. And sometimes this is considered lazy risk control. You know, your probability of occurrence being frequent, probable, occasional, remote, improbable, there's a tendency to just make it these factors of 10 when really you should be looking at the type of products that you're making and the type of products that you're using. Very early on in my, my career, I was doing brachytherapy in uh, the ocular melanoma space. And you have 3,300 cases in the US a year. Obviously, an improbable one in a million event isn't really meaningful because I had very high major severities because we were operating in the ocular space. You can have blindness, lose lots of trauma, the brain is right there, and we're working with radiation. But my risk controls weren't weren't robust because I had to take into consideration more data. So just be mindful of the type of products you're making and make sure that these ranges make sense for you. And you also have to think about what is your anticipated market? Like if, if your device might only get used a handful of times a year because it's for a either a rare condition, maybe it's still in clinical study or mm -hmm. um, the cost associated with it, you know, saying something is occasional at one in a hundred, it might take you years to have a hundred procedures to get enough data to say that this is happening, you know, at, at a certain a certain frequency. So, and then similarly, if your device is gonna get used every day, multiple times a day, you know, that that then this is, so I guess what we're trying to say is think about your device in terms of the physical risk, think about the, the actual market uses of it, and don't just copy and paste uh, these tables right out of the standard into your risk management SOP. Also consider um, not defining these in your SOP, but in your risk management plan that can vary product to product. Everybody knows that, that for risk control, you wanna go for inherently safe by design, you know, first and foremost, then the protective measures uh, that you can design also into the use of the device. And then last is information for safety, which also, you know, in if you're going to be marketing your product in Europe, they don't really find it acceptable for you to say that I mitigated any risk by using information for safety. So if we, we turn now and we look at how risk management interfaces with the usability process. I'm only gonna play a little bit of this, but I think it's really important to hear it directly from the FDA of what they think about human factors and where it occurs in the design and development process. The design inputs should also include human factors. So I'm only going to play that, that little bit because the most important thing is that human factors or usability are form a good bit of your design inputs. And if they form your design inputs, that means that the use context and environment of your device needs to be well understood in advance of you being able to formulate said design inputs.
So your human factors consideration are your use environment, your users and your interface. You know, your users can be, you may have two or three different types of users for a single device develop, depending on the setting um, that your device is used in. The, actually, this should should say the FDA was very clear to, to say over and over again to put the use er, the R error in, in parentheses because now they say this is really use error, not user error. And, and something that should be said here is that poor usability engineering leads to poor risk management. This is one of the foundational aspects, and I think it's the hardest one for people who are, you know, engineers, quality individuals, regulators, because a lot of times they haven't actually spent time in the environment of use. And so there's a lot more nebulousness around this. As an engineering background, my entire family is clinicians. I get a little more privy sometimes to what actually happens in hospitals. I've spent time in hospitals, but that's that's an area that I see when I work with teams really can lack strong foundation. So there are two standards for usability, 62366 part one and part two. And then there's also an FDA guidance document that is important to, to, to read to understand the expectations about the whole life cycle of the usability process. So the next few slides are a kind of side-by-side -side comparison. Um, the, these these stand, the actual flow here came right out of these uh, standards describing their interfaces. But what I'm trying to communicate here is if you look at the nature of the activities that is happening, both for usability and risk management, these activities are really pre-design inputs. So pre what we think of design controls, because we falsely think of design controls starting with design inputs, but they really begin with user needs, which help you articulate your intended use and so on and so forth. And there is so much that can be understood without a detailed design, just by understanding the concept of use and how it affects the function of the product before you even get to design inputs. So this is about the time where we encourage our clients to start using risk management tools. And the one that we prefer is in a very early stage, a pre-design input phase of development is to start your preliminary hazard analysis because this is a tool that is well suited to identifying your known foreseeable hazards and hazardous situations. And now look how you've got the same step or the same, at least nomenclature for the step in 14971 as you do in 62366. But your, your kind of context and the perspective that you're taking, one feeds the other. So preliminary hazard analysis is where we start to articulate these things. 
We also began the use FMEA uh, about the same time for that we're beginning the preliminary hazard analysis across the risk management and usability spectrum. So if we continue to move through uh, design phases, if we, we look at the design input phase, these are the activities between the usability standard and the risk management standard that, that occur here. And the tools that you're, you would use is your preliminary hazard analysis is continuing to live through your risk management process as your, your device design matures. And simultaneously, while we are, our preliminary hazard analysis is getting more, more articulate, now we're starting our design uh, FMEA and our process FMEA. Um, so now we can start seeing how these tools are overlapping with the activities that we should conduct. And now we are also seeing how those tools and the activities are overlapping with design and development phases. Another thing I want to point out here is that if you look at the design uh, output phase, look at how much we have spent in pre-design inputs and in design inputs, and then the, the amount of activities that's occurring in the design output phase. So the bulk of your work should be going into the thinking and planning in very early stage in your pre-design inputs and your design input phase. And, and all that should lead out for your design output phase. And that should be where you have the, the least, not the least amount of work, but your work has set you up to where the outputs just flow. Again, um, your design and validation phase, again, has a lot of your uh, another big chunk of your activities where you're taking your design, your design outputs, and now you're adding in the, you're finishing out your risk management and your usability tools. And you're, you're verifying that all that work you did in the pre-design inputs and design inputs uh, actually uh, was well thought out, well articulated, and that you met both your uh, intended use and um, didn't have any other foreseeable misuses. So just finishing that process out, the uh, UFMEA continues a little further down the risk management process, and then it's the first to kind of look back up into uh, feeding back into your risk management stage. And one final comment on this, these flowcharts, you'll notice that we talked about the three main types of FMEAs and the preliminary hazard analysis, but not every activity in risk management is in a bubble, which means that you still need more documentation to show a completed risk management file and a risk management process. So benefits estimation, um, it's typically derived from your clinical performance and patient outcomes, similar medical devices, and, and risk benefits of other diagnosis and treatment options. And when I mentioned MDR and state of the art, that is one thing if you look across not just MDR, but all of the MDCG guidance documents and other um, documentation that is available to, to demonstrate state of the art, 
They are now expecting you to address, are there, say, pharmaceutical alternatives? Are there surgical alternatives? What is your, um, what, what is that whole spectrum of care, if you will, that you have to understand to be able to understand the benefit of your technology compared to the standard of care? So this is, this is very challenging because it can be highly subjective. And then sometimes it's like, how do you compare which outcome is worse? It can uh, have long-term, the long-term effects can be unpredictable, expect, especially with new uh, technologies or new treatment options that haven't existed before. How do you be practical about it? And this last one can be tackled with clinical data. So uh, in, in medical device reports and in recalls, you know, literature, literature, literature is referenced extensively in the 24971. It's also referenced extensively or required quite extensively in uh, CE mark applications for the MDR. It is a divine uh, state of the art, which 14971 um, in the last revision finally um, defined state of the art. And it go, it's a little counterintuitive because it, it is not the most technologically advanced option, which we typically think of in our brains as state of the art, which is why you have to understand state of the art in terms of standard of care, not only for CE mark applications, but also for um, a benefit estimation. And then uh, simulation studies for high-risk devices. In the FDA, they have the um, Office of Science, Education and Learning, OSCL. I, I think that that's the correct um, ab abbreviation for it or the correct an acronym, um, where they're, they're doing a lot of pursuits for different types of modeling, both computational and virtual and otherwise, uh, to give people options to simulate the performance of their devices rather than use clinical trials. So, and then, um, you know, look outside of what we just typically think for maybe technical or re regulatory, but also look at socioeconomic data um, and, and think outside of the box where you might get data sources that could validate a benefit assumption. So, and benefit risk, you know, there you have to consider all of your benefits against all of your risks. You know, we commonly seen a chart that outlines your risks and the corresponding benefit that, that might weigh or balance that, that risk out. And then you have to do this individually, but then you also have to be able to make an acceptability statement at the end for all of the benefits and risks. So looking forward, I think in terms of what we might be able to expect with the alignment of QMSR, ISO 13485, and by in nature, in turn, 14971, I think we have to look at standardization across review divisions. This is an excerpt from uh, Amy TIR 105 um, that kind of shows the, the parallel processes of the device risk management process and the pharmaceutical risk management process and then the interactions of those 
all feeding into a master risk risk management master trace matrix for combination products. This is already kind of in use and recognized to an extent. Um, and all of this captures the residual risk seen by the patient user. So what does that look like in terms of application? Well, the risk traceability summary pretty much takes and puts in all one document all of those things and those tools that we, we talked about that happen throughout the design, production, and post-production processes, which also means these are activities that while they are risk management activities, but these are also fed by the offshoots of your, your quality management system that, that feed either some of these different tools or feed the interpret, interpretation of these estimations in the post-production environment and post-market surveillance. This is an excerpt from an, an article um, many, many years ago now that was talking about the, the risk traceability summary and this, in, this, uh, this interface from the TIR uh, of how they're, they're proposing that this could be captured. And this is important because, I mean, this looks like the, all the design development trace matrix that we're all familiar, uh, familiar with. Now, you know, it's an idea that this might be where FDA could go in terms of expectations. And, and we say that because it, it was very subtle in this um, presentation that they had yesterday in that they mentioned that they were already thinking about these things in combination products. And if you look at how combination products are thinking about risk, this is it. So without saying risk traceability summary in the training yesterday, they essentially applied it because they're using that TIR model in, on the combination product side. Another thing to, to be thinking about is that the FDA is experimenting with safety assurance cases. They require these for infusion pumps now, and it's, it's a little bit more of a logical um, Arguments not the right word because an argument is is it out? It's a, a context for to make a claims, a context for your assumption, an argument, and evidence. And so you start with the high level claims. You work down through all your claims associated with that high level, and then you start talking about what is your argument for why that that claim and that associated uh, risk or assumption is either valid or invalid, and then you support it with objective evidence, which is another reason going back to the risk traceability matrix and taking a little bit more of a design trace matrix concept works to support this as well. This is already implemented in the infusion pump guidance. So you can already see that, that this is, is coming out for med devices. Mm -hmm. And FMA, FMEA alone as a tool, will, it, it's very difficult to use this with just a FMEA and not those other risk uh, tools that we discussed. So final thoughts, it doesn't last forever in terms of design and development risk. At some point, you know, you throw it over the wall to the manufacturing engineer 
and he totally undoes all your assumptions and tolerances to make it more manufacturable because he doesn't really understand the traceability of why you specified that it had to do that in that way. So it's really important to have a, uh, a very communicative organization. We see a lot where organizations are siloed, their risk management activities are siloed. Nobody really understands why they pick certain things in the first place, and it becomes um, a, just a extensive tribal knowledge. Therefore, good documentation is uh, really acts like a map, not just saying that you know your output is material chosen. Your objective evidence is could could be a drawing, but now once you you get very specific about what on that drawing know, gives rise to how you fulfilled that design input, we know exactly where we're at and we can uh, backtrack to not just being on the map, but um, um, knowing what we did, why we did it. You know, a, a lot of times you're, you have so much PTSD after a design development process, you're not gonna remember what you did two months from now, let alone two years or, you know, 10 years from now. This is a public service react announcement. Uh, FMEA is not equal to a risk analysis in and of itself. And last but not least, it takes a village to um, get a proper risk management and usability uh, system feeding properly into design controls and post-market surveillance. It is going to take a, a probably a larger team than you have used in the past to meet all of the regulatory requirements and expectations for the FDA, for the EU, but most importantly, to truly design a safe and effective product um, for, for, for patients. Thank you for your time. I'm sorry, we, I know we really rushed through that and I talked really fast. I just wanted to make sure we got through everything because it was a pretty loaded presentation. I think we have time for just a few questions. I'm going to start with Melissa's first comment about uh, the discussion of state-of-the-art technologies risk life cycle over time. Very interesting. So that was back at the beginning of the presentation. I wonder how this compares to your experience with the control technologies life cycle we're experiencing in this day and age. For example, even FDA has requested comments on potential revisions for software validation requirements given the transition of companies to cloud system backups from local servers controlled solutions. Um, it seems to me that the ability to control risk can develop depend very highly on what we understand about current control technologies and how to manage those risks. So why don't we talk a little bit more about the state of the art and how it influences risk because I think it's one of the hardest areas to get management buy-in because you have longstanding technologies and you don't go back and address the changes in regulatory requirements. Right, and so I think what you said about software is, is the perfect example. You know, even five or 10 years ago, maybe a software solution might not have produced this kind of benefit, 
but also similarly a software solution that she produced back here that that at the time did produce a benefit over maybe some other um, technology available now if you haven't continued to keep that software state of the art in terms of maybe uh, cybersecurity or bug fixes now that the technology has moved toward, toward from the expectation of what the understanding of software controls were back then they're they're not the same now so if you haven't progressed your device might have moved from a potential benefit to uh to the hazard category the question was kind of long i don't know if that i think it's it. just a, a discussion point Dan House asked, should we always assume worst case outcome and mitigate for potential misuse? That is a very good question. And I think that that goes back to you have to understand the combination of the hazard and the harm. And if the worst case is really is not likely and there is not a way you could design it out. So you, you, there has to be the worst, how probable is the worst case? That, that's the question you have to ask. And ideally you could back it up with, hey, you know, we still got, uh, we still have this, we still are going to foresee that we're gonna be exposed here, but we have got some, it's no longer reasonably foreseeable that we're gonna have the worst case outcome. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, where do you stop, when do you stop digging the hole problem with risk management, right? Because you can really blow out foreseeable misuse, but there is reason to believe that foreseeable misuse is very real. I had an experience with a different company where someone had modified our barcodes because we had expiration dates and after a certain point that cartridge would not run any longer. And they told us, which was very honest of them, but that was a foreseeable misuse that we had never thought that someone would purposely alter our barcodes. And now all of a sudden that happened, we were informed and we had to go through whole new security validation, open a Kappa, do risk management. So it's really important to find the right stopping point, but not stop it too early. Another good question is, any advice to provide for performing a post-risk analysis following feedback from design specification for use when actual use in the market starts? So I think I'm going to try and summarize the question because it's a little bit long. So what's your advice for doing post-risk analysis when you're starting to get user feedbacks from, from devices in the market when it wasn't originally caught in the design and the intention? So we have events that have happened, like it's confirmed our post-market surveillance has confirmed that. So that that's the whole point of this being a life cycle. And when I said here that, you know, when it ends, it begins again, because now your post-market surveillance is going to further uh, in real world evidence validate if you, um, see if the assumptions you made about your user needs were correct and correctly informed your user inputs and then everything should loop back in after you get real world data 
should should loop back into one of the first stages of your risk management back up in here. And the second part of that question is how responsible is a manufacturer for managing these risks that were not part of the design intention? Well, you're still responsible for it. So if your device causes harms, you need to do an evaluation of that harm and the use. Is it, you know, was it negligence or is this a way that you're you're actually being used and do you need to start including additional risk control measures? It really comes down to also what the severity of that harm is or the severity of the occurrence has been. Michelle, if you have anything to elaborate or add there. Just to also think about how your marketing teams are advertising and selling the product. Are yes. they selling it off-label? Be mindful. And I think we only have time for one more question, and I think this is just a nice one to, to end on. Can you please elaborate on why FMEA isn't risk management? It's not risk analysis. So if you look at this whole process, so risk analysis is really very early stage and risk control, FMEA, if you look traditionally, what the intent of the, the tool is and what type of information it captures, it's typically more in this risk control where you are, um, doing a failure mode, you're talking about what a severity and out, uh, occurrence is, and then you talk about what a control is and what a, the new severity and occurrence is. That's not the analysis and understanding of the use environment, of the reasonably foreseeable misuses, of the intended use, of the characteristics related to safety, of all the, the what I'm calling the preliminary hazard analysis, that tool, captures this part of the risk process. FMEA alone is not enough to capture this whole life cycle of activities. And that's also why we overlaid the different activities that need to occur and the tools that we typically use at, in those phases. Thank you everyone for attending. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Good night.